The first reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for the good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now, I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. And will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the rains not to, the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. This is the word of the Lord. Our second lesson is taken from the book of Mark, chapter 11, starting at verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking into the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why don't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall round it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. 
He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to them. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Speak to God. Thank you, Anne and Pauline, for reading um, so beautifully for us. Do please keep your Bibles open at that second passage. That's the one we're going to be particularly focusing on. Um, And let's pray before we look at this uh, passage of Scripture together. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are our loving Father and that you speak to us through your word by your spirit and we pray that we would hear what you have to say to us this morning lord clear our heads from the things that would distract us and help us to engage with your word and lord we pray that our hearts would be ready to be changed Um, and we pray that you would bless us and encourage us and that we might go away from this place delighting more in you in who you are and what you've done for us amen You think of a question that you might ask that you really just don't want to hear the answer to. I um, raised this with one of my daughters, Becca, and I said to her, can you think of such a question? She shot straight back. She said, "Um, is there any homework for us to do today? But I thought her second one was the one that really tickled me. She said, would anyone else like the last slice of chocolate cake? And, and if you know our family, they're quite a lot of us, and chocolate is the currency. Um, that is the question. But imagine for a moment, um, there, there's a room full of people, um, and you ask that question, would anyone else like the last slice of chocolate cake? Or if chocolate cake's not your thing, um, then substitute whatever it is that you would really love. You ask that question, and somebody says, yes, I, I'd love it. Well, an internal con- conflict begins to, to rage, doesn't it? Um, your heart says, well, I, I want it. Uh, but then another voice says, but what would all these people say and think if, um, if I said, well, I'd quite like it too? And then another voice says, what would Jesus say? It's a simple decision about a slice of chocolate cake, and there are three voices. Which do you listen to? The one you listen to is the one you think has the authority to decide what is right. Do I have the, let's move on to the next slide, do I, do I have the authority to decide whether it's right for me to eat the last slice of cake? Or, or is it the other people around me? Or, or, or is it Jesus? We're faced with all sorts of decisions, aren't we, every day. Who has the authority to decide what is right? A member 
or of my family or your family or a friend has wronged you. And the question is, should I forgive that person and seek to be reconciled to them? Or a member of your growth group is struggling and needs someone to give them some help. Will you give up that time to help them? Or maybe another question, should I go to church this Sunday or, or, or do something else? Or should I watch a film which has, I know, has sexually explicit content? Or, or, or should I empty the overflowing bins or leave it to someone else? <laughs> Each of these decisions raises the issue. Who has the authority to decide what is right? And that's the question which the question which arises from our passage is, is it, is it Jesus? And that brings me to my first heading. What authority does Jesus have? And it's a huge question because it affects every decision we make. Let's remind ourselves of the background of, sort of where, we, where, we, where we were last week. In the first part of the chapter, which was actually we looked at last year, first part of the chapter, we read of Jesus entering Jerusalem on a cult, making an implicit claim to be God's Messiah, God's king. And then after arriving in Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, and you remember how he drove out those who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers, and he, as he did so, he acted in judgment over man-made religion. Unsurprisingly, he ruffled some feathers in the process. And the temple authorities were were none too chuffed. And so when Jesus next turns up at the temple, he's met by a delegation of the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. These are members of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. They were the most influential Jewish political and religious authority in Jerusalem. And their question for Jesus is, and I'm paraphrasing here, what authority do you have? What authority do you have? Have a look at verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? What they're basically saying is, you've just acted in judgment over our temple worship. What authority do you have to do that? When I was a boy, I I visited very distant family who lived at Castle Drogo in Devon. They had a boy my age, and we had huge fun playing around the place. And um, the family lived in one part of the castle, uh, and the rest was run by the National Trust. And while we were playing around the castle, we ducked under one of the cordons, and we were both challenged by a National Trust volunteer. I can't remember their words. It was many, many years ago. But their question was effectively what authority we had to go into that area, which was out of bounds to the public. And the boy I was with simply answered, we live here. And with that, his authority was established, and the volunteer apologized for asking, although, of course, they needn't have done so. Well, Jesus had acted in judgment over the temple worship. And these religious and political leaders, they ask him the question about the origin of his authority. And what does Jesus do? Well, he doesn't give that direct answer like my distant relative did. He answers with a question. Have a look at verses 29 and 30. Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? 
tell me. Their question is about Jesus' authority, and he replies with a question about the baptism of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist had been sent by God to prepare for Jesus' coming, and he prepared people by baptizing them. And we'll come back to why Jesus raises, uh, talks about John the Baptist or raises that in his question in a moment. But Jesus' answer to the leader's question in verse 30 gives two alternatives for the origin of John's baptism. He says it was either from God or just made up by man from, of human origin, as it puts it in the text. But Jesus is effective, in effect saying, how you answer my question about John's baptism will determine how you answer the question about my authority. John was sent by God to prepare for my coming. If you conclude that his baptism was from God, well, you'll conclude that my authority is from God. But if you conclude that his baptism was just something made up by man, you'll conclude that my authority has human origin. What authority does Jesus have? It's a crunch issue, isn't it? If Jesus has God's authority to decide what is right and wrong in any given situation and the right to stand in judgment over us, well, then there are massive implications for every decision we make, whether it's who has the last slice of chocolate cake or whether it's decisions relating to life and death. If he's just a man, well, then we can safely ignore him. The author C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, that Jesus was either a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. If Jesus' authority only had human origin, so C.S. Lewis reasoned, then he was either a liar or he was mad. Either way, he could be safely ignored. But if Jesus' authority is divine, well then in C.S. Lewis's words, we fall at his feet and we call him Lord. Each one of us has to decide in our own hearts. Is Jesus' authority to stand in judgment over us from heaven or of human origin? But there is an issue which is even more pressing than that. You see, Jesus could have just said, well, my authority is either human, either from, sorry, either heaven, my authority is either from heaven or is of human origin. You take your pick. But he doesn't. And he he answers the Jewish leaders with a question. Now, I understand that um, somebody's counted up the number of questions Jesus asks in the New Testament. And I understand that he asks around 307 questions. And as someone has worked out how many of those kind of direct answers he gives, I'd love to ask you how many you think that is. How many direct answers do you think he gives to questions? It is, according to this person, only three. Now, that's not to say Jesus doesn't give answers. He gives lots of answers. But Jesus, and it's nor is it to say that Jesus is being evasive. But he often says to us, yes, your, your question's a good question, but here is a better one. And here is the one that, which will get you to the hearts of the issue, get you to the heart of your issue. And that's, that's what he does here. So what is Jesus' question all about in verse 30? Why does he ask these um, teachers of the law and elders and chief priests about John's baptism? Well, it's because the issue is not just what authority Jesus has, 
but whether we will submit to it. So that brings me to my next heading. Will we repent and submit to Jesus' authority? Let me explain. We're told in the first few verses of Mark's gospel that John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus, and he preached what Mark preached what Mark calls a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's role was to call people to repent because we all face God's judgment. And baptism is a symbol of repentance. And the real issue for the leaders who were questioning Jesus was not where his authority to judge came from. The real issue was whether they were prepared to repent in the face of his judgment and to submit to his authority. That's a mark of Jesus' love, isn't it? It's an extraordinary loving thing for Jesus to do. These people were set on killing Jesus. If you have a look back, glance back to verse 18, you can see that. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. What does Jesus do? Does he use force against them? No, that's not Jesus' way. No, he asks them a question which points them to their need to repent. And Jesus' question was so gracious because it pinpointed their real need. And of course, like us, those Jewish leaders couldn't have begun to grasp the implications of Jesus' authority without first being prepared to repent of their sin. Our hearts want us, don't they, to be in authority over our lives. And the last thing our rebellious hearts want is to acknowledge Jesus' authority over us. Only a repentant heart can begin to accept Jesus' authority. Now, you might have been listening to me and been troubled by all this talk of submitting to authority. So it's worth just taking a moment to think about that. Because we tend to regard submission and authority in our society as, as very negative things. And our moral consensus since the Second World War has been based to a large extent on opposition to to that awful Nazi regime, a, a brutal authoritarian regime, which required submission and perpetrated terrible evil. So it's no wonder that we have we, we're worried about the idea of submission and authority. There is bad authority, and submission to bad authority can lead to terrible harm and suffering. But the answer is not to abolish authority and submission. Indeed, you you can't. As I tried to illustrate with my chocolate cake example, all of us submit to some form form of authority all the time, whether our own desires, what other people think, or, or to Jesus. The question for each one of us is not whether we will submit to authority, but whether we will submit to a good authority or a bad one. And as we've read through Mark's gospel, I hope that we've seen that Jesus is unequivocally good. He is the one who who heals the sick. He forgives sins. He takes away people's shame. He speaks to those to whom no one else will speak to. He looks at a crowd and he has compassion on them. He looks at a lost, rich man and, and he loves him. He goes to his death to save us from our sins, to give his life as a ransom for many, as we see written in chapter 10 of Mark's gospel. Jesus is unequivocally good. And the question is, will we repent and submit to his authority? Will we go and be reconciled with that friend or member of our family who's wronged us? 
Will we do that because we submit to Jesus' authority, which is unequivocally good, and he says that that is the right thing to do? Will we help that member of our growth group who is struggling and needs help? Will we do that because we submit to Jesus' authority and he says that that is the right thing to do? Will we make church a priority on Sundays? Will we resist watching that film with the sexually explicit content? Will we empty the overflowing bins rather than leaving it to someone else? Will we repent and submit to Jesus' authority? He is unequivocally good. What he says is best for us. It's best for the world around us. And submitting to his authority is an act of worship. So will we repent and submit to Jesus' authority? That was the question for the leaders who'd come to Jesus. And the tragedy was that their response was to reject him. And that brings me to my last heading, or will we reject him? Let's pick up the conversation again at verse 31. The leaders have a chat amongst themselves. Jesus has posed this question. And option one is to say that John's baptism was from heaven. Well, but if they say that, well, then the obvious question is, well, why didn't you believe him? Uh, and that opens up a whole can of worms, doesn't it? it, um, it what, if John was God's man, well, then why didn't you listen to him? Uh, why haven't you repented? Why haven't you got baptized? Why haven't you believed what John the Baptist said about Jesus? If they go down that route, well, then they would end up submitting to the authority of Jesus, and they absolutely didn't want that. Option two was to say that John's baptism was just a man-made thing. And the impression these verses give is that that is actually what they thought. But they wouldn't say it because they were too frightened of what the people said. See, the people concluded that John was a prophet and therefore that his baptism was from God. And they would have been in uproar if, if the Jewish leaders had denied that. So the answer the leaders give to Jesus' question is, we don't know. Do you see what they're doing? They are, in fact, rejecting Jesus' authority. They're partly submitting to the authority of the crowd, but really they're submitting to the authority of their own desires. And above all else, they desire to be lord of their own lives. So they give an answer which is, in fact, a lie. They say they don't know, but the truth is that they think they do. Well, Jesus follows this conversation with the Jewish leaders with a shocking parable in which he makes it very clear that these leaders have rejected him and not just him, but a string of prophets whom God had sent over the years. Now, the vineyard we heard referred to in our first reading from Isaiah chapter 5, the vineyard Jesus refers to in his parable is Israel. And the man in the parable is God. And the man creates, God creates the vineyard, and he gives it to his people. And notice the detail. He nurtures, he loves, he gives security to, and he provides for the people, for the tenants of this vineyard. And again, we're reminded that God is unequivocally good. And the only proper response to such a God is to worship him, to give him the worship that he is due. But in the parable, the man sends his servants to the tenants of the vineyard, and the servants, the servants in the parable are God's prophets. And when God sends his prophets, when the, when the man sends his servants, what do the people do? Well, they treat them appallingly. And they beat some and they kill others. 
And again, as a mark of how much God cares for his people and longs to live in a right relationship with them, he decides to send his son. Look again at at verse 6. He sends his son, it says, whom he loved. Now, as readers of Mark's gospel, we know who this son is. Only a few chapters before, Jesus is on the top of a mountain with um, some of his disciples and with Moses and Elijah, and God says, this is my son whom I love. Jesus is God's son. But when God sends him, when when the man in the parable sends his son, what's the response of the tenants? Well, it is to kill him. And in the same way, the leader's will kill Jesus. Then they think that by killing him, they won't have to submit to God and that they will be in charge. They will have authority over their own lives. Well, let's pause and take stock. Up until this point, Jesus has left us with two options. We submit to his authority or we reject him. Submission to Jesus' authority um, starts with repentance and leads to worshipping him in every area of our lives. Rejecting Jesus' authority involves setting ourselves up in place of God and seeking to do away with him altogether. But Jesus' parable goes on, and it concludes with the consequences of each of these two options, and they are serious. First, Jesus' parable makes it very clear that if we choose to reject him and live our lives for ourselves, well, then we face God's judgment. Now, God's judgment is a good thing because it means he will exercise his authority over all evil in the world once and for all and deal with it. But given the rebelliousness of each of our hearts, if we haven't repented and put our trust in Jesus' death for us and submitted to his authority, well, then we will face his authority in the form of his judgment over us. It will be a terrible thing, as the parable says. But if we repent and submit to the authority of Jesus, verse 10 tells us that our future is a wonderful one. It is a future in God's church which is founded on the risen Lord Jesus. Let me explain. In the parable, Jesus refers to himself as the son, and he explains that he will be rejected and killed. But in verse 10, Jesus refers to himself as the stone, the capstone. And he says the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, or or, or that can be cornerstone. In other words, Jesus' death is not the end. He has authority even over death. Uh, He rises from the dead to be that cornerstone. The cornerstone is the most important stone in the building. It's the one upon which everything else depends. The cornerstone is, is solid and reliable, and Jesus is that stone. So firstly, if we've repented and put our trust in the risen Jesus, well, then we have an eternal future founded on him, the only one who can give us new and eternal life, life with this Holy Spirit living in our hearts and changing us into his likeness. Secondly, if we've repented and put our trust in Jesus, well, we've become stones in a new temple 
of which he is the foundation stone, a new temple which he has founded for the true worship of God. And thirdly, if we've repented and put our trust in Jesus, we are part of the new people of God, the church, founded on the cornerstone of the risen Lord Jesus. If we're trusting in Jesus, the cornerstone, we have a secure and a wonderful future. No wonder the psalm says, the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So what authority does Jesus have, as we conclude? Is it from heaven, or is it of human origin? If you're thinking that question through, do you see how Jesus turns turns the tables effectively on those who are asking the question and, and asks a, and pinpoints their need to repent, to say sorry, and to turn their lives around, to live Jesus' way. And a good way to think about that further is to keep coming to our Sunday services and also to join our Christianity Explored course, which John mentioned earlier, the one that starts either tomorrow or next Sunday. But for those of us who are trusting in Jesus, where are those areas in our lives where we refuse to worship him by submitting to him? He is unequivocally good. Submitting to his authority is a good thing. It's good for us, it's good for those around us, and it is part of our worship of him. So let's take a moment now to ask God to reveal those areas of our lives we have yet to submit to him. And then I'll pray. Loving Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are unequivocally good. We pray that you would help us to identify those areas in our lives where we are reluctant to or refuse to submit to you. Help us as we make decisions day by day to submit to your authority. And Lord, we pray that as we do that, we would bring glory to your precious name. Amen.